0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Geeky Bartender Podcast with your boy KT Vindicare, and I'm here again with my very good friend, my brother-in-arms, Chris Raba. Dude, it's been a while, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, since we recorded, sure has. I uh, mean, we see each other from time to time, yeah, but, uh, but...
0: It's been far too long since we got a chance to actually record one of our ridiculous conversations and put it on the air for people to make fun of. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, I mean... It's been, like, probably about a year, and... Man, I has it been it, that long? It's been about a year, like, wow. I think, and it's one of those things where it's, like, I had everything set up to, like, go for, like, a while, but then one thing falls through, which makes another thing fall through, and before I knew it, I'm just like, damn, I'm gonna have to, like, put this all back together again, and I got demotivated. But lately, it's just been, man, I just want to put some thoughts out there, I want to talk out there, and just do something, because, you know... It's been uh, it's been a it's been a weird, tricky, difficult year. And
1: yeah, for everybody, I think, in yeah. so many different ways, um, just so many things. Like like, uh,
0: 2020 had a lot of unpredictable twists and turns. It's gonna be one for the books, dude. I mean, everyone's gonna remember what their 2020 was like, and they're gonna be talking about it. Yeah, so I think you're right. Want to get a little bit of that in here, and that's kind of like one of the main things that I want to do. But before we get there. We do have our cocktail of the of the podcast, which was what we promised we were going to have. So we're always going to have that. So Chris, take it away. What am I drinking? What's in my mouth <laughs> uh, right now? We're
1: drinking uh, the Lion's Tail cocktail. Um, the Lion's Tail cocktail is a classic. It was forgotten about for a long time. Uh, it was originally published uh, in London, I believe. Um, or at least the author of the book was uh, from London. Uh, it was published in 1937. Um, however, a lot of uh, alcohol historians, cocktail sp- historians, um, they speculate that it was probably an expat who left during Prohibition to London,
0: because a lot of them did. Oh, damn. Um, See, I don't even think about that. But that would definitely be a thing, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. If, were, if Prohibition came back, wouldn't you like feel compelled, being the kickass bartender that you are, to be like, well, if I can't practice my trade anymore here legally, I might move so I can practice it somewhere else. Absolutely. I mean, bartending
1: is the only career I've seriously considered uh, in like you know during my adult life. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Like if I couldn't do it in this country as hard as it would be, I'd find some other place to do it. And and
0: that happened a lot during Prohibition. Yeah, it's a part. It's a part of Prohibition. I've never even thought about. But yeah, now it makes total oh, yeah. sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have like a lot of famous classic cocktails were invented overseas by American bartenders, um, and since the Lion's Tail calls for bourbon as the base spirit, um, that is one hint that it was probably an American bartender that created it because you know most uh, European bartenders at the time would have opted for a spirit that was a little bit closer to home, right? Either, you know, like cognac or some kind of French brandy or, you know, scotch or Irish way, whiskey This drink would be way gin. too sweet
0: with cognac. I could see it working with gin, but I don't think it would work as well. I think the bourbon is, or the whiskey, because there's rye in this.
1: Right. So we did a slight variation, uh, where we used rye instead of bourbon. Andrew and I are both, I mean, bourbon is uh, quite lovely as well. But I think if, you know, gun to our head, we had to choose. We're a little bit sweet on rye, yeah, so to definitely. speak, even though it is drier. Um, I like what I did there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know, Andrew's shaking his head. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I'm shaking my head at how big the smile that you have on your face is. Like, you really <laughs> did like that play. I'm you just did it <laughs> completely by yourself. Um, but uh, so a, a classic lion's tail is uh, bourbon. Uh, allspice dram, sometimes known as pimento dram, um, but you know basically that's a liqueur that is uh, flavored after the you know well-known allspice berry. A uh, little bit of sugar, like simple syrup, uh, lime juice and Angostura bitters, and uh, that's it. That's that's the original. Um, basically, kind of a riff off of uh, a bourbon sour. Mm-hmm. Right, it uses lime juice. Um, which is a little bit, you know, like uncommon for uh, a whiskey sour. Um, but, uh, uses lime juice, uh, and then allspice dram. And it was forgotten about for a long time because, uh, after prohibition, um, allspice dram, like stopped being made i don't know exactly when after prohibition allspice dram stopped being produced but for a long long time it wasn't produced uh anymore and um i think it was maybe 2007 that uh a company resurrected this you know uh long forgotten liqueur and with that people started digging into you know that that was kind of around uh like just as the modern cocktail renaissance was getting kicked kicked off, and people started looking up these old recipes and finding recipes that called for allspice dram, and now they do, do you get know it.
0: if uh, allspice dram back in the uh, back in thirty seven was made in Europe, or if that also was like an American export? Because I'm thinking too, because this might actually go back to a theory that I've had about old Prohibition cocktails is. Um, I think there was, you were still able to legally produce bourbon in the United States, but only for export, I believe. Mm. I don't remember exactly how that worked or where the distinction was drawn, but I'm thinking Prohibition era bourbon, if it was the same sort of bourbon that you could get for yourself illegally, it wasn't as good as like some of the bourbon that you could get before or after Prohibition. And so, I my theory has always been that like really strong flavor elements, because we would have both agree that allspice dram is a strong flavor element. If you're not yeah, careful absolutely. with if it, if you're not careful with it, it'll just completely dominate a cocktail. I mean, the cocktail will just taste like allspice dram, and everything else gets lost. Those sorts of ingredients in cocktails, when I was doing some of my thinking and some of my research, a lot of those came about during Prohibition. Like when you think of the concept of pineapple juice. Specifically, pineapple juice, and then I think orange juice too. Like really strong, mm. sweet flavors. Those became trendy in Prohibition, and that's because I think the booze that you were getting was such was so much lower in quality than what you could get before or after. So a lot of those kind of fell out of favor a little bit. And allspice brand is not quite as easy to make as like something like pineapple juice would be.
1: Mm. Um. You know. That that's interesting. I don't think I I know enough. Like, I don't have enough data points to really answer that question one way or another. I do have some hunches. Um. So you know, we'll call them educated guesses. I think that pineapple didn't start being used as a main cocktail ingredient uh, until like the Tiki movement, mm-hmm. until after World War II. Yeah, no, it was. Um, it, yeah, but I mean, because you it, had like. Yeah. You know, I mean, until Hawaii became part of the Union, which was in the 50s. Right. So, uh, well, no.
0: Uh, I think it's 51. I mean, there was Pearl Harbor, right? So it had to be part of... I think it is the 50s. I'm just forgetting which year it was. I'm a bad American citizen. Or, you know, a typical American citizen that doesn't know their own history. <laughs> but until, like, the T E movement is where you saw
1: a lot of Pineapple Incorporated... Um, a lot of tiki cocktails call for allspice dram. That was, in terms of the market pressure that brought allspice van, dram uh, as a product back into the modern era, like, that market pressure was from people wanting to recreate tiki cocktails, by and large. so what was. Classic the, so what,
0: So then, the, the question that I get in my head is that, what were people drinking between when Prohibition ended and when the tiki movement started? Because the tiki movement kind of, vodka. of like... A lot of well, vodka.
1: well, a lot of I mean, okay, pro, post prohibition, you have because you kind of the Great Depression, and then you have like you have the lead up to World War Two. so that's a good
0: question. I don't know, I know that because post- that's where World that's War where can beer got going, that's also where like Johnny Walker got huge because they were basically delivering. Like tons of booze to the to the armed forces, mm. and so I think maybe that just kind of stayed around for a little bit because what I mean is there really a cocktail scene going on during World War Two? Um, I'm not sure. I'm really
1: I'm really not sure. I know that post World War Two, uh, in like the '60s, vodka became really big, um, and the American palate, you know, basically moved towards things that were. Boozier and more neutral. Um, yeah. Like, like, that's when vodka really, really took off. Uh, it was, like, in the 60s. Um,
0: it's, yeah, so... Which is ironic, because that's, like, the height of the Cold War... And that's when vodka gets going in the United States. I think that's hilarious.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, hell, you look at when, like, the Moscow Mule was invented in, in L.A. Uh, and it's, like, right around that that era. And that's uh, yeah, like it's The
0: Moscow Mule.
1: Yeah. You know, it's crazy that the Moscow Mule, right, is an L.A. original. Is it? 100%. I did not know that. 100% invented in L.A. Um, I... Used to know the specifics of the history not that long ago, but, you know, my memory kind of fades in and out, and,
0: uh... Because if you put, if you, like, put a gun to my head and said, what drink did you make the most of as a bartender, the Moscow is up there. It's, like, probably, like, top three, you know? I mean, I'd I'd say... It's right behind, like, a vodka soda or a vodka cranberry. Yeah, and maybe an old-fashioned, because of, you know... Yeah, because of where we were at the famous, yeah, the old-fashioned gets called for a lot, but even there, you still get a lot of people coming in because we made the best Moscow Mule in town. Yeah, I'd say so. But
1: uh, yeah, the, uh, the original like Moscow Mule was uh, invented in L.A. Um, it was Smirnoff. Basically, the bar had a bunch of copper mugs and Smirnoff was looking for a marketing gimmick and uh vodka companies are good at coming up with marketing gimmicks <laughs> you gotta give them that uh no comment here <laughs> um so yeah it was uh smirnoff was looking for a marketing gimmick they had all of these copper mugs and the bartender just threw vodka and ginger beer together put a put a lime wedge on the side and a copper cup and boom moscow meal was bored uh, a lot of just like just kind of happenstance honestly it was just I mean,
0: the Moscow Mule for me holds like a, just a little place in my heart because when I was first moving from bar back to bartender those a long double 16 hour shifts I used to work just so I could get a chance to bartend I remember I was bartending with our buddy David Tran and mm. we had this group that were coming in it was probably like six or seven of them and they were just going through Moscow Mules and so David, he looks at me and he's like, you can do this, right? It's, it's this simple. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can set that up. He's like, good. Take care of this group. Anytime they want around, you, you do it so I can deal with everybody else. And I was like, cool. But that was like the first actual cocktail. Because I don't consider like a rum and coke or a, you know, a uh, vodka soda. I don't consider those to be actual cocktails. I know technically they are. It's, it's, but, a, it's not a hard and fast line. Yeah. You know? But to me, that felt like the first real cocktails I actually made in a bar setting. There's right. like round after round of those, so yeah. right,
1: yeah. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a popular one for sure, and and what's nice about the Moscow Mule um, formula, there's a, there's a
0: zillion variants of it now. <laughs>
1: yeah, and and you can more or less like sub out the vodka for just about any base spirit, and it'll still be tasty. Um, I, honestly, it'd be hard for me to come up with uh, a spirit where it wouldn't be good. Right, if I'm running through the general order of like what my well looks like, vodka, yeah, obviously, gin, yeah, um, tequila, tequila, yeah, uh, it'll work with mezcal, it'll work with more or less every whiskey. Actually, I like mezcal mules, like, yeah, I,
0: I genuinely enjoy those. I prefer those with like ginger syrup and soda instead of ginger beer, but if someone handed me a mezcal mule and said, Hey, man, have a drink, I'd be like, Yeah, sure, I'll drink this,
1: yeah, um. Yeah, it'd honestly be be difficult for me to find uh, a spirit out there that, it you know, where I wouldn't recommend, where I'd say, oh,
0: I wouldn't mix that with ginger I would, beer. I think the only two I can think of would be probably dark rum and cognac, because I think it could even work with, with light rum. Uh,
1: well, the thing is, is that, okay, so cognac, I have not had it. I'm leaning more towards agreeing with you on that but dark rum there is there is,
0: is a famous oh, there's co- a dark and stormy exactly with, ah andrew but that's like a specific type of dark rum because Gosling's very dark rum because goslings doesn't taste like because if you're gonna make a dark and stormy it's got to be gosling specifically gosling they have a trademark yeah because i don't know if you can even do a dark and stormy with like any other type of what we call dark rums because goslings doesn't taste like anything else I mean, it's a blackstrap demerara rum. You're gonna
1: get a lot of molasses, right? Um, Cruzan also makes a a blackstrap uh, rum that is similar, but really, like what defines Goslings and that style of rum, which is not super common, um, is that really heavy molasses uh, like aroma to it. Um, You know, it definitely like has its place. And, uh, you know, like we mentioned, like Gosling's literally has the trademark on the dark and stormy. Right. Um, it'd be pretty difficult to actually prosecute, you know what I mean? Yeah. But cause you could just say, yeah, this is a dark and stormy variant. It's exactly like a dark and stormy, but with a different rum. Right. Um, and yeah, that would probably still taste delicious. Uh, I actually recently for an event made a slight riff on dark and stormy where, um, I used honestly the only difference uh, was that I put orange bitters in it, and I used uh, put lime juice inside rather than just having that lime wedge, and then I used an orange wheel as
0: the garnish. We used and to that make... was just it was a little brighter. I forget there was another drink that we used to make. Oh, no! Uh, now I know what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the uh, the horse's neck. Mmm, good one. Because that's basically a a, a a very similar cocktail, but that also is bourbon, but with bitters on top, and. Is it bourbon or rye? I can't remember pretty, off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure it's bourbon. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's bourbon. You might be right though, because you know, because I'm getting, I'm getting, doesn't it, really matter. I'm getting it and the rusty nail mixed up, because mm-hmm. that one was also on our first menu at Mousse Den. But yeah, that now I'm starting to think you're right about the rye. But um, you can, bourbon and rye are usually interchangeable in, for the most part. It, for the most part in cocktails, so I, I've probably made them with both, but. The, the addition of those uh, that, of those bitters on top, it goes from being a drink. I'll drink if someone offered it to me, but, like, I actually like a horse's neck. Like, I'll actually yeah. I'll actually order that at a bar if, like, depend if I'm at, like, a certain type of bar.
1: Uh, honestly, uh, if you, if, if out there in the audience, if you guys like a Moscow mule or, frankly, any mule variation, throw some Angostura bitters in there.
0: Yeah, I'll agree with that. Like,
1: throw some Angostura bitters, throw some orange bitters in there. It's a nice
0: little twist. Angostura bitters goes so well with the flavor of ginger just in general. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So, absolutely 100%. But, I mean, you and I are, I think the only person who's a bigger fan of bitters than me besides you is probably Roadhouse. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Because he was the first person I knew that, like, just drank Angostura bitters, like, as, like, a shot. Really? Yeah. Because I definitely did that. I was definitely doing that...
1: I think before Roadhouse.
0: Well, maybe I was doing that maybe, before The maybe, Famous. Maybe he picked that up from you, but he was the first Probably. person I saw that ever did that. So
1: fair. Uh, we'll give him we'll give him that. Um, yeah. But uh, I man, once you can obviously to drink bitters neat or on the rocks, even it takes a, a special type of palate. Uh, I'm it, that's, one that's what,
0: one that's very accustomed to that taste of bitters. Right. But uh, but honestly for me it's like dude if you can do a shot of fernet. I know they're not very similar in the way that their flavors, but they're both very intense too. Like they both have that really like strong punches you in the face bitter feeling that's really uncomfortable at first, but then you you come to love it, you know. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like drinking an IPA. Who who out there is there anybody out there that really loves their first IPA? I mean, really? Did you love your first IPA the first time you had one? No. Neither I did I. Yeah. You know, I my, definitely didn't. No, my two, my, two first, my two first IPAs were Stone and Arrogant Bastard. And I still don't like Stone IPA. You know, I like some of their variants, but their, their baseline Stone IPA, I'm still not a fan. Arrogant Bastard, I've grown to love. And when, that's so funny, because like when I first had it, we got it specifically because it was called Arrogant Bastard. And my roommate's like, you're not going to like this, but you're going to have one because I'm buying you one. And I drank the whole thing and I hated him for it. I'm like, dude, what is this? He's like, you see this, right? It's arrogant bastard. You're not there yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Like, uh, But now I love hops. It's one of my favorite yeah. characteristics in a beer. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, alongside my cocktail or the glass that formerly held my cocktail. He did say before on
0: this podcast, he drinks fast. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm, I'm drinking uh, Lagunitas Hop, which is their, their hoppy refresher. It's basically hop-flavored sparkling water, and I am absolutely addicted to it. Like, if you like hops and you like bubble water, this is your jam. You
0: know, you've convinced me over the years of so many things that I thought I wasn't going to like, and then I eventually ended up doing it in soda water, probably mineral water, sparkling waters, and all the vi- different types of them. It's just the latest one because I'm drinking right. a Topo Chico, <laughs> and that's like you've got cases of this stuff back at your apartment.
1: Yeah, he's not joking. I literally have cases, um, but uh, I, I love this stuff. Honestly, um, I know that you actually are not a big fan of this, but uh, yeah, because I, I'm, I'm addicted because I don't
0: like the flavor of hops as much as you do. I mean, right. it, I like the I like the marriage that is uh, hops and malt. I think those two flavors together are just a wonderful contrast with each other. Of course, other. of course. And that's like the primary purpose for hops in a beer in the first place, is to mellow out the malt and give the whole thing a more balanced flavor. Yeah, to balance it out for sure. Yeah, but if I'm dryness, just like, ha- but hops, hops as a hops as a flavor in soda water, then again, I think to myself, Andrew, sometimes you like just having a little bit of Angostura bitters in your soda, and that's totally fine. And I'm like, but that's not the same thing. So, I I don't know. I mean, you end up convincing me a lot when it comes to, like, (laughs) flavors in drinks. But at least right now, it's still not my jam. That's all right. More for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, In case you guys are interested, uh, you can pick it up at Trader Joe's. Or at least Trader Um, Joe's in L.A., yeah. Right, 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 yeah. Uh, At least the one on Hyperion.
0: Um, So. Dude, I'm just thinking right now, dude, it's been, like, I'm genuinely, like, I know that I called you and I wanted you to talk about a certain thing, but, like... Just getting here to shoot the shit with you about, like, bars and cocktails and, like, ingredients and, like, even, like, name dropping a couple people. I mean, it brings me back where I'm just like, yeah, Yeah. you know, everything, everything's good now. But then I go to myself and I'm like, man, after I'm done with this, after we're talking about all this, I just want to go hang out at a bar somewhere and just, like, you know, make some more new memories. And we just can't do that right now.
1: Yeah, amen. Yeah, because this is the kind of thing that I love doing behind the bar. I know, right? Uh, either with my fellow bartenders or um, with guests. And uh, I miss it. I, I, I miss it so very, very much. Um, you know, I, I know I mentioned this to you before, but uh, I think that the next time I'm working at a bar and we're like three deep and we're just jamming and, you know, like it's busy... I might, I might have to take a moment and I might shed a tear. You know what I mean? I'm, it might be an emotional time for me because
0: I miss that so much. I've... Um... And it's even so funny because, I mean, those moments to people that aren't ready for them are super freaking stressful. You know, I've seen, pe- I've seen people buckle under pressure like that. But, you know, for those of us that have, like, that have experienced it, that have gotten to know it, I mean, when you don't have that, it's like, dude, what are, like, what's your game day? you know that's our game day yeah that's our game 7 dude like you know we're we're three deep in the weeds and we're like just trying to keep up but by the time it's all done you feel like you just won the championship or something you know right yeah i mean i i love
1: i love when i'm in that and i can like hit sixth gear that that moment where you're not even really thinking about your movements it's just all muscle memory and it's yeah. all flow and you're just like making things without even thinking about it or you're just like You know, you you're in this this moment of like like your your mind is zen amongst the chaos, and you're you're just riding the waves, and uh, I I love that. There's um actually, uh, I want to say this was like very very early this year. There's a a photo of me on my Instagram, uh, Eugene Lee, who I think is at this point LA's premier. Uh, cocktail photographer and bar photographer uh eugene is a manager at a uh, big bar in in alcove uh, one of my favorite spots um he's a really really genuinely good guy amazing photographer and he's uh, done actually all of the best photographs of me quite literally all the best photographs of me period are were taken by eugene so um, he's got the ones of
0: you at the famous too does he Probably. That, I'm pretty those, sure yeah, they hired I, him. I, yeah, I saw some of those. I saw some of the older photos. Some of the older photos of you at Famous is fucking pos. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, yeah and he, he took a photo of me. Uh, and honestly,
1: I'm like mid-conversation. And I've got two shaker tins in my hand, like mid-shake. And you can tell that this bar is swamped. And there's like two guys like crossing behind me. Um and honestly, it's, it's a hilarious photo because one of my eyes is like slightly shut for whatever reason. Um, so I look kind of out of it. But you can just tell based on my facial structure how happy I am to just be in it. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I really look forward to, to uh, post-co- the post-COVID era when I can be back there like that.
0: You know, I had a small, very, like, it brought me back. So it, it, I got to experience just a taste of it. So that it brought me back and made me realize how much I missed it, too. And that's when I was doing the pole working for L.A. County. Huh. And it was when we actually got busy. And I found myself just going back to being a bar back where I'm just like, OK, I see. What's the most what's the best way that I can contribute right now to make sure that everyone is more successful and what I realized was that like prep work was what we were missing out on the most because I'm like people are starting to run out of things yeah and I'm like when you start running out of things and you're under the gun and you're in the well and all of a sudden you need to go and re and reload by yourself you know and people are waiting for you to do that that backs up the whole line so I had a free moment I started just restocking everything envelopes pens uh, we were using a lot of sanitation equipment Obviously. Uh, like wipes and hand sanitizer. There's so much of that. I've never used so much hand sanitizer in my life. <laughs> but I'm reloading every single station, making sure that nobody runs out, so they can just stay on what they were doing. And I'm thinking as I'm doing that, the nostalgia hits of a busy Friday. And I got four wells, and I'm the only bar back. And I'm just like, Yo, man, we're we're going. I'm just I'm checking each well, and there's nothing. The best feeling you can get as a bar back is when you you hit the bartender with just what they need right when they need it, and that little, like, nod of gratitude of, like, I oh, see yeah. you, you got me right now. Oh, yeah. That's the best feeling as a barback. There's a lot of good feelings as a bartender, too, but, like, as a barback, which I know you and I both love being barbacks, like, you know, provided we're in the right situation, mm. but when you can get that moment of, like, you got them right when they needed you, you know? You know, that's... Uh, that, that is... Uh...
1: That's barback extra credit. You can do everything right as a barback and the only way you can like get that little like nod of appreciation that like oh you've gone above and beyond is that moment. Is where, you know, as a bartender, I'm running out of like vodka and by the time I run out, my barback already has an open bottle of it waiting. Just waiting for me to take off the pour spout, plug it in and finish. That like man if you can nail that as a barback, like that's extra credit, man. I, I will I will never forget the barbacks that because it, it, it's rare because and, and I get it, it, it you know the, as a barback, you're managing your cooldown times. There's a lot of things to manage, right uh, to use video game parlance. you're, you're managing your cooldown times. You, you know a lot of things to manage, a lot of plate spinning. And to be able to pull that off, right, is, is a thing of beauty, and and those are the barbacks that I'm like, oh yeah, you're for real, like, like you know what I mean, like, um, that it's barback extra
0: credit. I just know, uh, I know one moment in particular, um, I don't remember what night this was, it probably wasn't even that busy, but it could have even been a Thursday, you know, a Thursday trivia or something, mm. but David Tran, again, one of our good friends we both worked with that we both respect the hell out of. Yeah, I love D. Tran. Um, he, was, he was wearing the horseshoe by himself. Mm-hmm. So he's basically got two wells open right there. And we were we were busy. Like, we were definitely busy, but we were busy but we were undermanned too. So it's it's different when you're busy and you got just enough guys. It's right. different when it or or girls. It's different when you're uh, when you're busy and you don't have enough people.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, so it was totally it's, it's, it's
0: three of us and Tran, and tran's got two wells to himself, but I noticed he's down to his last ten. So he's like he's got one tin in his hand. And there's no tins left on the top of the well. So I was in the middle of doing something. And I had just enough cooldown time left where I'm like, I've got 20 seconds. I can do this. So I ran over. There's a big sink right there. And I started immediately getting his tins. And that was probably the most sincere, delighted smile from a bartender that I was barbacking for that I've ever had. And he's just like, dude, thanks, man. Cause yeah, because that, and that's, that's all. Of, clutch, dude. That's all. Because yeah, he was about to run out of his tins, and he had six tins that he was working with. And that means you got to stop what you're doing yeah. and wash all of them. Yeah, reload on six tins, but I've got him. So while he's getting the next customer's order, he's got all six tins back in his well again. And just like I, you knew, like, dude, that was a big hookup. Because the last thing you want to do is you want to leave your bro right there on the line with you, and he runs out of ammo. That's yeah, the, that's the. I mean, dude. I mean. That's just as important. And that's what I try to teach like when I was when I was trying to train barbacks. And this is also too, I mean, we both have this same philosophy of why you want to take care of your barbacks. Because mm-hmm. a good barback is so important to making sure that those nights where we're all in the weeds, if we got a good barback helping us, that's like having a good healer in the party, right? Right. right? Instead it, of like everybody taking care of their own life, you've got one person whose only job is to make sure that everyone else stays alive.
1: Yeah, I mean barbacks I consider them the base of the pyramid. Right? If, if you've got a... They're the foundation. Right? If you don't have a... They, they are your support staff. And if you don't have a good support staff, then, you know, it's only a matter of time before everything that's built mm. upon them crumbles.
0: See, I look at it this way. I look at it as uh, bartenders are damage dealers. They're the ones that are actually making the drinks, like exchanging the money. They're the ones that are actually like, you know, reducing the number of people that are standing in line. You know, they're dealing the damage. The, the bar managers, they're the tanks. If anything goes wrong, if there's anything going wrong with the customers or if any of the customers want to be difficult, that's the manager. So the manager has to take all that aggro, if there's one there. <laughs> and then the bar backs are the healers, because bless them, they've got the job of keeping this ragtag group together together, you know? So, yeah, I love that metaphor. Yeah. I love that. It's so good. I still haven't figured out quite where security guys fit in. Sometimes they're tanks. But that, so they could take the role of a tank, but that's not necessarily their full time job. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I've um. It's so funny because you brought that you brought up the cooldowns thing again. When I was first learning how to bar back, and when I was first learning how to bartend, everything started turning into video game analogies for me. Everything. <laughs> and I'm like, how did Chris, who doesn't play a lot of video games, be the one to say, hey, you start using video game analogies? So then whenever I started teaching anybody else, we, me and John used to do this a lot. It's another one of our friends.
1: Yeah, John Corella. Yeah,
0: whenever I needed to explain something to him, I'd be like, listen. And I would explain it to him like he was in a WoW guild. And that was all it took. It was like the easiest way to get him to just be like, oh, okay, okay, I got it now. Yeah. It's like just that concept right there.
1: Yep. It's funny because I've literally never played World of Warcraft. Yeah, I've watched you play a bit. You yeah, know, and I know a bit, a bit about it, but uh... and a
0: lot of the time too, I would explain to you like what we were doing or why this was important. And I even remember venting to you about like some of the problems I was having with my old guild when I'm sitting on the other side of the bar on a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor. So yeah, I mean, I, I love I love dealing damage. Dealing damage is fun, but. You know, my favorite thing when I was doing WoW was when we were on progression progression night, and we're going for, like, a really hard boss that we haven't downed before. And in those situations where things are difficult, that's when I want to heal. But there's nothing more boring than being a healer when everybody's got their game down. It's like you feel like you don't even need to be there. Right. And, and that's and a really and that's a really similar scenario to being a barback. Yeah. Because being a barback on a slow night kind of sucks. It does. But being in those situations where everyone's getting hit and all the damage is going out there and you're the one keeping everybody together. Oh man, I love that feeling. It's like I actually even when I was even when I was officially a bartender, even when I had seniority on some nights, like that's what I wanted to do. You know, I just wanted to take that job because that job can be really fun and gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But then we both know when it can't be gratifying. And that's when the people that are that are working there where they take their barbacks for granted, and it's like, why would you do that? Yeah, yeah,
1: I know. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, I think you can always tell a bartender that has barbacked, uh, like really barbacked. Uh, and, the way, and the way, in the way we were not... brought
0: up, the way we were brought up and trained was that you couldn't bartend unless you barbacked first. Right. Like, they, they just didn't believe in it.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, and ideally I think that that is the way it should work is promotion from within. Um, you know, un- unfortunately I-, I, I like understand why it's often not done. If you have a really, really good barback and you try to promote him to a bartender, unless he's been training on his own you now are taking a cog that runs really smoothly in one place of your machine, and you're putting it into another position where it's not going to run as well. Yeah, because she's you know that he or she is not going to be as good of a bartender as they are a barback uh, when they first start out. So um, you know I understand that, but it's uh it, yeah it's uh, ideally you should always promote from within. I think there needs to be an education. Uh, system in order to get that great bar back up to speed uh, to become a good bartender as mm-hmm. fast as
0: possible see that's what those slow nights bar backing are supposed to be for that's what they always were for me if I wasn't working if I wasn't hustling then I'm asking questions I'm watching I'm paying attention I'm riddling I'm I'm bothering whoever my bartender is and not every bartender is cool with that right. but the guys, the guys that I learned from my Jedi Masters that was it it was it. It's like, if I'm working with Matt Wallace, you know, whenever, whenever both of us have a free idle moment, I'm picking his brain and he's teaching me. Usually with a lot of cursing involved, but he's teaching me. God and bless then him. with, and then with Dave Madrano, I'm learning from him just by listening to his experience. Cause he's got, you You think we got a lot of bar stories. Well, Dave madrano has <laughs> got libraries of bar stories. So just listening to how he handles situations. I mean, he was probably my main guy in learning how to deal with customers, you know, mm. Because Dave Medrano was brought up in a very different style of bartending than we were. He wasn't, he was never like, he didn't train to be like a a classic cocktail bartender. But he worked clubs, he worked all sorts of like other types of environments. So he's dealt with every sort of customer you can think of. So. Right. Yeah, so learning from him was just as valuable as anything I learned from anybody else. Hmm. And, you, and that's you included, but you know that I value the shit out of everything you've taught me. Well, thank you. <laughs> because, again, if you guys don't know, it's called the Geeky Bartender Podcast, but I'm more of the geek, and Rob is more of the bartender, because he taught me a lot of what I know. Well, I mean, I like to
1: think that uh, I'm a geek about bartending. Yeah, you know? that's true. Uh, among a couple other things, but yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> Uh, geek about bartending. Well, you, and sucked me, well and you sucked
0: me into the world that is bartending, but I've also sucked you into a different other, uh, another different world. Now, that's probably not worded all that well. But, uh, we both got... I got you into the world of StarCraft. And so, I don't know... I don't know if uh, you've been keeping up uh, ever since uh, the last GSL. Not but, so much. Fill yeah. me in. Well, I mean, that's the thing I wanted to talk about. Well, first I wanted to ask you, I mean... Um, so, 2020 has been tough for bartenders... But it's also been tough because uh, the uh, for the esports scenes and sports in general. Yeah, I'd say sports in general. Sports in general, yeah, sports and esports. But there's a lot of moving around that's supposed to be going on with those teams, and so this year, uh, StarCraft has been pretty much exclusively done online. The only time that the uh, the only tournament that I know of that does anything that's like offline or in person is the GSL. And that's mm-hmm. because South Korea is like, you know, South Korea has really been taking COVID seriously. And even then, they, I mean, they have, uh, I think they had fans in the audience, like a very small crowd for the GSL finals. For the finals, they yeah. did. But they for did. The, rest of the, the rest of the tournament, they didn't. Correct. Yeah. Like not even a single person was allowed to be there that wasn't actually working on the production. Right. But I mean, I don't really think that's detracted too much from the quality of the games that we've seen. No, this year I think we saw some of the greatest matches uh of all time. I think some of the greatest ones happened this year. Some amazing amazing matches. There's been some sick ones. Um I was real disappointed at the end of the last season because I was really pulling for Maru to get that G5L trophy, but everyone says I know you were everyone says now the G5L trophy is cursed. No one will ever get it. I
1: mean, you know, law of truly large numbers, if there's enough GSL seasons played, somebody will get it. But I think that even though Maru lost, those games were
0: epic. They were very close, yeah. very scrappy in some parts. And hey, I, I mean, as much a, as I can be disappointed, a pleasure to watch. as much as I can be disappointed that Maru didn't get it, I have to hand it to TY. He's been on fire. This year, this has been probably the best single year that Ty has ever had in his career. Yeah, I would say so. But and, on, uh, go ahead. But on the other side of the, um, on the other side of the, of the of the continent, over in Europe, there's been a lot of things have been in flux, and so I don't know if you've been paying attention to a lot to what's going on over there. But there was a uh, a tournament recently um, that came after GSL, where all of the Koreans that were playing in it with the exception of stats, were actually knocked out before the round of eight or in the round of eight. Really? All of them. Maru, Innovation, uh, Trap. uh, I forget who else was there. Armani. Um, Yeah, all of them were out. Like They didn't make it past the round of eight. They were all knocked out by Europeans? Not all of them. Some of them knocked each other out. But yeah, like for example, uh, Time knocked out Innovation. Huh. Maru got last place in his first group. And I think it was actually Armani that finally did it. Now I'll sit here and say, well, yeah, I think Armani can take a, a, a best of three off of Mara, which is what he lost. He lost two best of threes to one, both of them. Hmm. But then you had guys like, uh, so Clem made an amazing showing in this tournament. And he has actually beaten both Sarah and Rainer on in individual tournament finals this year, I think. Huh. Like, he's just, he's become like hands down the best Terran versus Zerg. In, uh, the, in the foreign scene. And some people say he's got the best Terran versus Zerg in the entire world. I think that's debatable. But... Right, but he is regularly facing off against
1: arguably... Uh, I mean, I would say that Raynor and Serral are easily top five Zerg in the world. You can't put them any lower than top five. Right, easily. And, yeah. and uh, if not, you know some would argue that uh, they're one and two. Yeah. or maybe, you know, like two and three. It's I mean it's hard to say, it's hard to really compare yeah. those things, but he gets regular practice against some of the best Zergs in the world and you can all see, the time. And you can
0: tell by his play. The only thing the only area where I think he looks a little weaker is against other Terrans. And that's because there's just not as many like Terrans at that <laughs> level in the foreign scene. There's right. like there's a lot more Protoss and a lot more Zergs. Uh, dude, you, you look at some of these uh, foreign tournaments and like how many players are, are coming to it, and you'd be surprised at how many Protoss players are coming. None of them mm. are winning, but like you look at the lower brackets and you look at like how many players are actually qualifying, it's mostly Protoss. Yeah, they're like they're the, it's, huh. it's the most popular race, so you have to ask yourself: you're like, well, if there's this many Protoss players, how come they're not winning? But at the same time, it's like, oh, the win rates look this bad because most of the tournament is Protoss players and they're not up to snuff. To handle somebody like Clem or Rainer,
1: hmm, that's so, interesting.
0: So I was gonna the thing I was gonna bring up about about that about DreamHack Masters was number one the online thing, number two the fact that the Koreans all got destroyed in this tournament, and number three was Cyril won his first uh, title in several months. You know, <laughs> yeah, which is funny. That's a that's a that's a long dry period. for No, Cyril. no, actually, it's been a talking point. There's been a significant dry period. For Cyril this year, because he loses to Rainer a lot, and he lost to... I shouldn't say a lot, but he loses to Rainer quite a bit, and he lose, he lost to Clem earlier this year. Right. And then he had a really bad showing in uh, the last tournament that he was in, where again, just like Mario, he didn't make it out... Well, I think he did make it out of the group. He made it to the round of eight, so not quite as bad. But... Um, and then I think... Yeah, it was Clem, I think, that knocked him out. Was Clem or mm-hmm. it was Cure? One, one of the two. Both... One of the two C, four letters... Terran players but um yeah so it's been it's been volatile over in the foreign scene meanwhile in the Korean scene it's been very you know the same players but just like kind of shuffling around yeah Armani I
1: think was the the one big surprise yeah definitely Um, definitely
0: last season Armani made a big showing of himself
1: right uh and you know there's some other like kind of first time appearances uh that were made, and those players, like Zaun is the one that comes to mind. Uh, yeah, june has been, uh, yeah, he's actually, Zaun,
0: I think it's pronounced June. june? I'm pretty okay. sure it's June. But yeah, he's actually, um, he was at this tournament, no, was he? No, but he's been at a couple of other foreign tournaments too, but they're all online, so it's hard to keep track. But Right,
1: right. But uh, yeah, some of the tactics uh, and strategy he was bringing to the game um, were really, really interesting. Uh, I think him and Patience really kind of they, I think they really permanently have changed the Protoss meta, right? That heavy robo style. I think that that is, that
0: is here to stay. See, I don't know, though, because the last time... I saw the first couple rounds of Dreamhack Masters, and the way that Terrans were attacking that style by just... The way I've described it is, like, you know when you see uh, Terran versus Terran, where, like, one player's just going very heavy mech, defensive mech with, like... yeah. Lots of siege tanks and everything yeah. else like that. And the other players going bio. Do you remember that dynamic? Yeah. What's the thing about that dynamic? Uh, I mean... Basically
1: what the mech player wants to do is absorb, absorb, absorb... Until they can get enough production and enough resources... Where they can just move in one fell swoop and crush. Right. Which and is the exactly... bio player needs to yeah. like attack multiple fronts all the time... With little forces, mobile right. forces... Um, and frankly never get their bio caught by, like, sieged tanks. Right. Because if you're caught by siege
0: tanks, that's it. Like, <laughs> that force is pretty much decimated. Which is exactly what, uh... It's exactly how this heavy robo style has become. And the difference is the way that Terrans have started attacking it. Terrans have just started going to the point where they're like, okay, you can't beat that army, but that army needs to stay together. That army is not very mobile, so uh, we're just going to attack Constantly. We're never going to be defending. Never once. We're going to attack, attack you, attack you, attack you, attack you, attack you in every location, and you're going to have to split that army apart. And mm. unlike unlike siege tanks, disruptors have to be manually controlled for their shots to do anything. You can have a couple deployed tanks not knowing what they're shooting at, but they'll still shoot at anything that comes in range. Fair. So what I saw in the early rounds of, I think, I think it was that Dreamhack Masters tournament, was... This didn't even look viable anymore. The Terrans that were attacking it, like Hero Marine, uh, I think Beyond was not not Beyond. um, It was like, was it Innovation or or, or TY, one of them? They were just relentless pressure and just completely making it look not viable. So Mm. I don't know if it's here to stay. I think it's a tool in the toolkit now. Okay. but But I don't think it's going to be the predominant style that it was anymore. I think people have started figuring it out. Fair, as, as happens. Which is always fun to see, right? Right,
1: yeah. Uh, it's fun to see that evolve. I, I honestly feel very fortunate that for the professional sport that you and I follow like most closely, well,
0: certainly me, you do follow, you know, like... Uh, I follow I follow most of the major ones. Basketball, some, some, football. Yeah, some more closely than others. Football's easy to cover. It's easy to follow because it's one game a week. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, where StarCraft
1: can have a lot of different games and tournaments depending on the diff- the region, etc.
0: And obviously, basketball is much more difficult to follow because it's 82 games in a season. Well, now it's going to be something like, what, 70 or something like that? I don't know. Yeah, no, they're, uh, they're still figuring out the details for that. But uh, I feel fortunate that at least for StarCraft,
1: um, you know, the disruptions have been minor, right, in terms of, like, how the seasons have played out, they started a bit later, but by and large, we're still going to get all of the same, you know, tournaments. I, I,
0: I know that, like, every sport has this problem right now, but the lack of crowds is really killing a lot of the hype. People aren't as hyped as they were when you get to see, like, you know, a crowd of forty to 50,000 nerds. Like, so Katowice is, like, the big championship event now, and that takes right. place in Katowice, Poland. And, dude, that crowd, like... I've never, like, it, that crowd is just as raucous and as enthusiastic as any, like, as any sports crowd I've ever seen. Maybe not huh. quite up to the level of some of the more ridiculous soccer stadiums, but pretty pretty <laughs> raucous. Huh. Pretty, pretty raucous. So, um...
1: If, At least until Sarah loses, or gets knocked out. <laughs> well, I mean... Sorry, it's a bit of
0: shade on European
1: uh, fans there. So. Well, I
0: mean, uh, Sarah's like the uh, the Michael Jordan of European Starcraft. And I mean, one thing about Europeans is that they all tend to really support their athletes. I mean, Luka Doncic is a basketball player that killed it during the playoffs. And I know he's super popular in Europe. I think he's what Serbian. So, um, no, he's not Serbian. He's a uh, Croatian or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a Balkan area. Um, but yeah, no, they're, they, they love this kid over here. It's like, this is like Europe's golden boy coming, yep. coming to, uh, coming to the U S and playing and dominating it's just like seral you know seral's like was with the minute he started being able to beat the koreans consistently he's all of europe's golden boy he's not from finland he's from europe fair yeah i think it's funny that they're like that because I, I think this whole dynamic is really weird too because it's like oh um he's he's european but he's beating up the koreans it's like that's one country
1: <laughs> south korea <laughs> is a
0: one country i know and, and Europe is like what, like a hundred countries or something like that. Like I don't know, Still but right. it doesn't matter what, what country. It doesn't matter what country he's from. He's from Europe, so it doesn't matter. And it's like ah, it's like I can't, I can't claim Scarlet to be an American, can I? No. no, I can't. I can't claim Special either. And those are the two best players from North America. Although that's the other thing about this uh, this most recent tournament. Neeb and Australia who are American and are Protoss, made a really nice showing of themselves, too. Oh, nice. Yeah, so for the, yeah, about time, boys. It's the first time in a yeah, while. neib has been quiet uh, for yeah, a while. Yeah, has been the up and comer, and I've written off Neeb a few times, and every single time that I do, he like manages to like punch back and be like, yo, I'm not done yet. Hmm. So, I mean, good on him for that. Yeah. I mean,
1: I, I do uh, Scarlett, uh, who's um, uh, the only female uh, professional StarCraft player that competes at high levels. At that level. There are yeah. some.
0: There are a couple of other ones, but not at that level. Right.
1: Um, she's from Canada, and then you have uh, special uh, Juanito from Mexico. And they have a special place in my heart, not only because they're from North America, but I love their play styles. I just love watching them play. When they're on form... Uh, they are really, really fun to watch. Uh, you know, and that, that uh, early, I think, season one this year when Scarlett uh, beat Rogue with just some dirty play, just some, like, oh, man, it's just, like, dirty, cheesy, backstabby play, and you're just, like, like uh, it was so satisfying to watch her take out arguably, uh, you know, Easily again, the, one of the top five zergs she, in the world. She was delivering the regards of the Lannisters. <laughs> yeah, that was some dirty play, but I loved it. Uh, and so, you know, when when her and special are on their game, I love watching them play. They're so fun to play, or sorry, fun to watch. And uh, honestly, for me, StarCraft, uh, you know, is is a spectator sport because you play. Uh, but I haven't played in many many years. And I, I, don't I play, never played I don't StarCraft play Two as much as I used to. Um, but for me, it's you know, pretty much purely a spectator sport. And so I love the players that are fun to watch. Um, you know Innovation is a fantastic player, but he's not always that fun to watch because he has pretty much, I mean with some exceptions, but he more or less has one style. And he excels at that style like probably more than any other Terran. His parade pushes, his, like, Marine Tank parade pushes are, I think, second to none. Um, He excels at that one style, but, and that, you know, brings him a lot of victory, but it's not always the most entertaining to watch.
0: And then you have a player like, I can never, I can never get tired of watching Innovation parade push. There's so much that goes into it. (laughs) But that's like, you know, but that's, you know, as a player, you know, it's like someone that plays basketball just watching Kobe's footwork all game. Sure. You know, not, the, not the rest of the stuff that he does, just his footwork. Sure. And then, you know,
1: you have a player like Parting. Like, if uh, if Innovation is Kobe Bryant, which is saying something, I don't know, but like, if Innovation is like Kobe Bryant, uh, I think Parting is like
0: Dennis Rodman. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like, where is he gonna go with this? Because he doesn't know basketball that well, but that's actually freaking perfect. <laughs> yeah. Parting is like
1: Dennis Rodman. Parting will pull out the craziest stunts out of nowhere, sometimes both in-game and off-game, um, or at least crazy by uh, professional StarCraft standards.
0: Which is nowhere near what Dennis
1: Robin. was No, like. not, not at all. Yeah. Um, but he's just so entertaining to watch. He's an
0: entertaining personality, period, both in-game and off-game. See, I, li- I mean, I'm totally agreeing with you, but I like watching Parting Lose. I do. Huh. I like seeing what crazy stuff he's going to bring, and then just to see it crash and burn on him. And I'm just like, yeah, I had a good time. Thanks for that, party. Right. But it's like, but if you're, I don't want you beating any of my, any of my favorite players. It's really fun watching him beat players that aren't my favorites. That's right. always fun. But I don't want him beating any of my favorite players. Not with the bullshit he always pulls out. <laughs> I, I, in general, every time he's in a game, I always
1: am pulling for him. I think 90% of the time. Even if he is facing, you know, some of my favorites. Um, because... The longer he stays in the tournament, the more I get to watch him play, meaning the more entertaining, right? Um, It's same with, like, SOS. A lot of SOS SOS brings a lot of crazy strategies, and honestly, they don't always work. But when they do work, it's incredible. It's like you just watched a magic trick, like a a blow-your-mind magic trick, you know? that, That proxy
0: nexus... Where he built a nexus in his opponent's base? That's what you meant when you said, like, some of the best games I've ever seen. Yeah, because that was, like... I don't think we're ever going to see that again. No. Now, that particular strategy, I don't think we'll ever see that again. You know, but it's a player
1: like SOS that brings in out these, like, once-in-a-lifetime plays. That, like,
0: that was also season one this year, wasn't it? God, yeah. It I feels know. like ten years ago, to be honest. Yeah, but there's been... I mean, each season of GSL has been a banger. It's, yeah, been three it's been seasons, a good. and each one of them has been a banger. Yeah,
1: it's been, uh, it's overall been a really, really good year for GSL games. Uh, so, I guess that's a 2020 silver lining,
0: which, you well, know... yeah, I've definitely watched more StarCraft this year than I did last year. Mm-hmm. And I think there actually might have even been more StarCraft this year than last year. Uh, perhaps. I, I couldn't really tell you. Um, I've
1: definitely had more time to watch it, but, uh... You know, the, just shifting gears a little bit here, I think that the one, like one of the things that 2020 has taught me is uh, how to see silver linings more clearly. I can see that. No, I've definitely, um, I've definitely uh, had a lot of those epiphanies too myself. Whether it's out of necessity or what, I, I couldn't really explain to you the psychological mechanisms behind it, but um, I have definitely started paying attention to silver linings. Uh, more than I used to, um, and uh, that for that I I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. I hope that that is something that I can carry on throughout my life, even after things go back to air quotes normal. Um, I don't know if they know. Have, I don't know if they ever will though. Right. So some facsimile of normal, maybe not exactly to what it was like in 2019, but you know post-COVID, when, when there is a widely available and effective treatment
0: that most of the population has gotten, um, you know, uh, as close to normal as we can get back to. That's definitely a good goal to have. And then even that's a silver lining, where you're just like, I'm going to try and, you know, I'm going to try and smell the roses a little bit more. Right, know, Rather yeah. Rather than only focusing on the sound of traffic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something like that, yeah. Well, I don't know... Um, how much time you've got left but i did want to ask you one more thing and that was um i wanted to ask you so if i consider innovation to be superman okay where he is he's mostly you know what he's gonna do but it's always real strong and it's always kind of like but i enjoy watching it anyway because i want to see all the different situation that he's in Mm. And I kind of think in in this situation I would probably consider parting to be someone kind of more like maybe more The like, joker I, maybe not quite the joker because I don't know if I don't know if everyone considers parting to be a villain but I mean maybe maybe because yeah the joker is like I, I, I don't want to give this too much credit because the joker is one of my favorite characters in comics. yeah I think he's, I think he's one of everyone's favorite characters for in sure comics. Uh, maybe Deadpool that's a good one. That's a good one. Parting might probably be Deadpool. Yeah, probably. Um, Thing is, though, is that Deadpool is like written. Well, I guess Parting builds himself that way too, where like he builds himself to be a bit of a comedian constantly. Yeah, and and I think if you actually like get some more sincere interviews, because you never get a you can never get a sincere interview out of him. He's always making jokes. Hmm. He's always on, so to speak. Uh, but is that the reason why you have like an issue with Superman because he's always doing the same thing? Yeah, I would say
1: uh, if I had to distill it down, my, my issue with Superman, uh, so for, for those out there uh, in the audience that don't know, Andrew and I have a long-standing feud uh, about... Um, I wouldn't call it a feud. I would call it a disagreement. Sure, sure. We have, we have a long-standing disagreement about Superman as a character, and I think that ultimately my issue with Superman is that he's a flat character. He's predictable. They call him, I mean, his nickname, and this is not something I came up with, but his nickname in the, like, comic book and, like, this, you know, the superhero fan community is the Big Blue Boy Scout, right? And you and I are both Boy Scouts, so I think, I think that makes us, that means we're allowed to make fun of the Boy Scouts, but, uh... Oh, jeez, yeah. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah. That's a different topic. (laughs) It sure is, for another podcast, but you pretty much always know how Superman is going to act. You know the decisions he's going to make. uh, And it may be difficult for him to make a decision, but that's only because he's trying to decide what the greater good is, right? Or what the morally upright thing to do is. And, And that's why I've never liked him as a character, is because he tends to be flat
0: and predictable um by and large. Well, here's, well, part of that, I mean, you're right in part, but part of it too is that he is Big Blue and everyone expects Big Blue to behave a certain way. And right. it's one of those things where it's like So for example, if you're the guy that never gets mad at anybody, if you're never if you've never got beef with anybody, and then all of a sudden you get mad at a person it becomes such a huge deal, right? But right. like this behavior isn't expected of you. So what's the like it just gets blown out of proportion. If you're the guy that never gets mad, you're not allowed to get mad. Cuz if you do it becomes a gigantic deal that you can't really walk away from easily. And that's just one example. Okay. Yo. Know, so the thing about Superman is that like not only not only uh, not only do the readers kind of hold him up and say, well, Superman's only going to do this, or Superman's only ever going to do that. But the characters in the stories are like that, too. So, um, by himself, I can kind of see why you're like, oh, I don't really like Superman if he's the only superhero involved in a story. But I think Superman works at his best when he's being a contrasting figure to other superheroes, or he's being forced to work with other superheroes, as a what? foil, so yeah. to speak, yeah, I think so, he
1: is useful uh, from a storytelling standpoint um, in that way, as a foil to the other other. Characters. Like, if
0: you're if you're just gonna read a Superman comic, and it's only Superman and one villain, and again, this is the other thing I wanted to bring up, but if you're only going to like see him and one other character, I can kind of see where you're coming from with that, but um, that's like the one-on-one innovation thing, right? But we constantly go back and forth comparing superman to batman and you const- we're, you're constantly contrasting the two of them and why batman's better and i'm sitting here going like well dude i think the two of them together are an amazing character dynamic because of how because of how different yet how similar they both are and hollywood like they managed to try and do that with superman versus batman but it was so bad that movie was so terrible yeah, I'll be honest, I didn't really, I, I didn't see it. Um, it's, it's bad, dude. It's not Last Jedi bad, but that, I didn't feel a sense of disappointment in a movie until I saw that. And then Last Jedi blew it out of the water the next year. <laughs> I mean, I, I think
1: that you're right in that they do play off of each other well. But I think that Batman as a character can stand on its own. Uh, can stand on his own as a character because he has so many. there the his backstory, his motivations are conflicting. They're messy. Um, they are not clear cut. You know, uh, Batman struggles with a lot of things. Um, you know, it obviously struggles with uh, like his parents being killed and his backstory in that way. Um, I think he struggles with the idea of. Um, battling monsters without becoming one himself. You know, and he kind of like toys with that line of uh, how much can, how much, you know, pain or like punishment can I inflict on this villain uh, and let myself inflict on this villain uh, so that it is, so, you know, that they are having to face the justice they deserve, but I'm not meeting out just vengeance or I'm not just practicing violence uh for my own gratification you know like uh because there's a you know there's a point where you know even if you are righteous in your actions the the means that you take right can sometimes lead you down a dark path uh and can turn you into the very monster the type of the you know turn you into the very type of monster the type of monster that you're facing sorry guys um you know, and, and I think that there's a lot of... I
0: think there's just more complexity to his personality. See, I, I see a lot of those similar things, though, whenever I see a Superman story. But it's just... It's different in how it's told. It's just different in how it's told. Superman is not like Batman in that, like, Superman is a very... Like, Batman can be... You're right, he's more versatile in that Batman can be a macro superhero where he can be a member of the Justice League and they could be going around and like, you know, saving planets or saving the earth or whatever. like And Batman can find his niche in, and often does, in very brilliant ways. And again, the live action stuff hasn't really done this justice because Batman in Justice League, I just don't like him in that movie. But in a lot of the animated stuff, yeah, Batman is one of the best characters. But the thing about Superman is uh, just by the very nature of who he is and his powers... Almost everything he deals with is on a macro scale. It's hard to do micro scale Superman right. But there have right. been there have been stories where it's been him and let's and that's a lot of the time it has to do with Lois Lane or some other people. There was this wonder there was this really, really awesome I forget which comic it was, but it was Superman just having a one on one conversation with somebody who was suicidal. And it was just the conversation the two of them had. That's all this was, and it, it became like this gigantic like uh, one of the most famous Superman comics, and I forget which one it was, but almost every most of the stories, just because of the nature of his powers, have to do with Superman dealing with something macro, something larger. Right, because so, he has yeah. his powers yeah. are immense. So a lot of the commentary that you get from Superman, because there's a lot of you know psychological commentary and a lot of personal commentary. That's like you Batman's being used as like a way to tell people that like it's okay to feel this way or it's okay to feel that way. Or this is what you shouldn't do or whatever. But Superman a lot of the time is very much a social commentary. Where when they change Lex Luthor from being a mad scientist to being a businessman, hmm in a way, it becomes a thing where it's like, Oh, is Superman's enemy really Lex Luthor? Or is Superman's enemy really capitalist, you know, consumerism? You know, big freaking business, you know, you could easily see it that way. And a lot of the time, Superman ends up being, like, the target of the U.S. military because the military is really paranoid about how powerful he is. So he ends up at odds with them. Or people will bait Superman into doing something really minor, then making a huge deal out of it because they have to besmirch his perfect image. But it always has to do with Superman being this big, bright symbol. And I think there's this line—there's a scene in the Justice League cartoon— which I think really kind of like shows why um, why this can work. Because in this, in this one particular episode, everyone thinks Superman's died. Except for Batman, who doesn't want to accept it because, you know, he's Batman. He, there's not enough evidence that Superman's actually dead. But at one point, Batman says to himself, maybe he is dead. And is standing at his grave. And he says, I have, I've never had anything but respect for you. You showed me that justice doesn't always have to come from the darkness. So that's the difference, I think. Sure.
1: And I do think that a Superman story can be can, you know, have uh profound and like relevant messages, but I think those aren't located in Superman the character. They're not internal. Superman's like internal motivations are always predictable. They're always pretty clear and predictable. He may be part of a wider story that has like interesting, you know, messages and conflicts involved uh and kind of like maybe blurs the line between what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do uh and you know plays with those questions but inside of superman he's always the big blue boy scout
0: that's it i just don't always think that a character needs to be as deep and as complicated as batman for them to be a good character provided the story works you know like i'm trying to think of another really good example of this from somewhere else but i mean I know, I like what that... like what about the hound for example like the hound's an amazing character but the hound's very one dimensional isn't he i wish i could tell you about the hound i'm not familiar yeah. the hound from uh, song of ice and fire oh oh okay from song of ice and fire sorry you're like you you move yeah. you transition yeah, no, from i'm, I'm out trying of yeah i'm trying superhero. yeah i'm trying to think because there's a lot of and that was the other point that i was going to make was that i think okay if, if your point is, like, mostly, like, these characters mostly do the same thing, like, their character uh, is not super, super deep. I think, yeah, but I think that's because they're comic book characters. And I don't think that th- there's a lot of comic book characters that are not. Some of the ones that stand out really well are, like, Magneto is considered one of the best villains because he is so freaking complicated. Right, right. And I
1: love him as a character, but they're like you know, I t- I like complicated. I mean, and this is just again, it's personal opinion, it's personal preference. I like complicated characters. I don't like simple flat characters. Green Lantern, not my favorite, not at all. There's, right,
0: and that's the thing too, is that like rather than like Same making ha- Mike, rather than making Hal Jordan like more, like having different renditions of him, they just have had they have different Green Lanterns. So sure,
1: yeah, um, you know, but but. Uh, and and that's the things like I just I don't I understand their purpose for storytelling. They definitely have a purpose for storytelling. Often, but I just don't tend to like flat characters. Um, yeah, and that's a personal preference thing. That being said, I do think we should wrap it up. Uh, in the audience, if you guys have opinions. About anything we've talked about, whether it's uh, bartending or you know like living in the COVID era or um, comic book characters, Superman versus Batman, or hell, even if uh, even if you're a fan of GSL or fan of professional StarCraft, which you should be, we'd, you know, uh, you know
0: if any if anything we've talked about, like you can take away from um, I know things are it's tough to not be bored in periods like this. I mean, I think that's like the main thing a lot of people are struggling with is just straight boredom. Mm-hmm. I don't want to remove the financial hurt that a lot of people are dealing with because that's a little different. But boredom is definitely a huge thing. And one thing... You are talking about silver linings earlier. One thing about being a geek is that I think it's been a lot easier for me to adjust to being in the COVID era than people whose interests are otherwise. Because I'm still going to be able to read comics, watch cartoons, um, and I'm still going to be able to watch StarCraft. And so... Silver lining mm-hmm. for me is that this hasn't been as difficult for me as it has been for some other people. But damn it if I don't miss being behind the bar. For sure. And I can't wait to get back to that. Me too, man. Preaching the choir.
1: All right. Uh, yeah, reach out if uh, if you guys have anything to say. Any Cur- you,
0: need, you need to do something before, before I let you go. Uh, right. You mentioned uh, that wonderful photograph of you. That's on your Instagram, but I don't think people know what your Instagram actually is. I think you don't have as many followers as you realistically should.
1: Uh, I definitely,
0: I mean, I definitely
1: don't have a whole lot of uh, followers. Uh, Instagram is,
0: new is to you. not
1: my, I, I don't know if it's new to me, but it's not, it's not my jam. You know, it's, uh, um, but you can find me at, uh, at Chris D. Raba. So D is my middle initial, but uh, C-H-R-I-S. D R A B A.
0: Um and I don't have a whole lot of, on there because but I've got some interesting things and yeah Well I think I think it flows with each other. You get more followers and you're gonna start wanting to post more things because yeah dude uh there's a lot of older photographs from you that you could link to and stuff like that. I mean it's I'm not trying to like give you way too much undue praise, but yeah. It's a fun it's a fun person to follow. So definitely look them up. But for the rest of this um i'm going to try and do more content when i can but i don't have like a stable, uh a collection of guests just yet i'm reaching out to people but it has been much more difficult with covid because sure for what we're doing right now sitting across from each other it's just it's more difficult but i'm going to try and put more content up soon so the only way you guys are going to be able to find it is if you're subscribed to me here on youtube at KT Vindicare. Or uh, follow me on Twitter, also, at KTVindicare. And then I think we're also on anchor.fm and um, a couple of other uh, podcasting sites. So just keep an eye out for those, and we'll see if we can do more of these pretty soon. But Chris, thank you so much. This actually Always was... Always a pleasure. It, dude, it's super easy talking to you. You know, you can go, we could literally go on for hours. But uh, yeah, this is a good place for us to end. So thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time. All right, bye.